Fact Chat! Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of maths do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Yes, you're listening to Backchat, the freshest rap of news and current affairs on the radio, where your presenters Yanni and Laurel. That's such a bad joke. Okay, excuse me. <laughs> but the sad thing is there's someone out there who just heard, like, Laurel and Laurel. <laughs> I definitely heard Laurel and Laurel. Yeah, I feel like this joke died on Tuesday this week when Paul Ryan made a made a joke about it in the House of Representatives in the US. So I mean, that's really the buzz. That's it? the problem of having a Saturday show. All the good memes of the week are already old. How are you, Swetha? I'm so good. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty excited. We've got a pretty busy show today. Yeah. Um, we've got well. I think it's kind of interesting. We've got kind of a theme running through the show today, kind of displacement, colonialization. It's it's yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. First up we've got um Joel Spring coming in to have a chat about Redfern Waterloo and what's happening there. Um and then we've also got um Randa Abdel Fattah, who is an amazing um, author and academic who's going to talk to us a little bit about Palestine, Israel. Yeah, so that's all coming up, so please stay tuned. But first, Madison, it's really important that we talk about the royal wedding. It is, it's really important. Don't look at me like that. Priorities. It's really, I think uh, you and I both, we were like, what uh, is the most exciting or like what's top of the headlines this weekend and it was all the royal wedding? It's all that's on the internet. You and I just, do, we, do you know anything about it? Do you know who's getting married? It's Harry. Yeah. And Megan. Markle. Yes. The chick from Suits. <laughs> from Suits, yes. From Suits, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's like, I feel like I'm in a different timeline. I mean, I thought you were pretty excited about it, though, when we were talking before. Oh, don't out me on that. <laughs> what is this? No, I was just, you know, I, I like, you know, to see hats. That's my draw to the wedding. That's the only draw I have. My oh, okay. only stake is seeing the wild hats. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like there's always like a a thing that goes viral from from the wedding from yeah, the so royals it was, getting um, married. Kate Middleton's sister's butt last time, which is weird, right? Weird. That the whole world was just that's all. Like, about. let's hope that that's not what happened this time. Yeah, I know whose butt is gonna. <laughs> I mean, what I want to talk about is I really like I have a very specific um, type of coverage I want to see. So the two types I want to see. First is I want to see uh, Peter Fitzsimmons, the head of the uh, Australian Republican movement, and his commentary on the wedding. Oh, the guy with the bandana? Yes, I think that'd be fantastic to hear him um, grumble about it. And I think I also really want to hear uh, the Who Weekly Facebook page talk about this wedding because... Who is coming? I think the all who. If anyone doesn't know, Who Weekly is probably the best Facebook page that exists. The only good one. It's it's basically just a whole bunch of people um, talking about B grade celebrities and just going like who. Who. Um, but I think given that this um, wedding is going to be peppered with the depths of TV stardom, Literally. there's going to be a lot of who's. Like it's not uh, like these beautiful Met. Like was Megan invited to the Met Gala? Like was it? It's not going to be these like beautiful Met Gala. Like you know what I mean? Like George Clooney's not invited. It's going to be <laughs> members of the Suits cast. I I couldn't. Name I think it. I wrote down one person. His name is Gabrielle Macht. A star. He's uh, he's Harvey Specter. 
in suits. Do you watch I suits? Have, I haven't watched it. I didn't study law. Why did we? <laughs> Why is this on the agenda? Let's let's cut it. Let's cut it. Well, actually, you know what? Um, uh, there's a live stream on it on YouTube at 8 p.m. So if anyone's interested. 8 p.m. Eastern YouTube. Tune in. Please. Um, I think something that really encapsulates our feelings um, about this is Emma Thompson. She was... Uh, being interviewed I heard on the red carpet and she was like please just well everyone can listen in stop it just stop it okay <laughs> stop doing the ooh let's talk about the royal wedding perfect yeah <laughs> let's <laughs> let's take her advice pretty sharp moving right along so We've got a good chat. Over, <laughs> over the past decade, um, Sydney has become one of the most expensive places in the world to buy a house. Yeah. I think we all know that. Most young people I know rent and struggle to make rent. Yeah. Uh, and according to um, Demographia, who runs this survey every year about housing prices around the world, uh, Sydney has the highest median house price in the world, second only to Hong Kong. Wow. So, um, and, you know, we talk a lot about this. We talk about housing affordability, but um, Joel Spring is an Indigenous architect um, who's been looking into specifically how this has affected Redfern, Waterloo, um, and displaced um, Indigenous people from central Sydney. And obviously Redfern and Waterloo were kind of like front runners in this idea of sort of Aboriginal self-determination. Um, so, Joel, thanks so much for coming in to have a chat. Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, so, let's do some definitions <coughs> first up. Sure. Um, so, I think when people talk about gentrification, they kind of all have their own understanding of, of what that means. Mm. And I think even you have a show on Skid Row, yep. um, which is based out of Marrickville. But yesterday on the show, you actually interviewed some white people about what they think gentrification is and they all had different... Yeah, yeah. We had some kind of vox pops out on the street. It's kind of a segment that we call Cartographers of Colonisation um, that we've been doing kind of, yeah, as a repeating segment for the show. It's it's interesting. It's We have we have like a, a kind of political rhetoric around these ideas in the, in the housing affordability crisis and all these things, but I, it, the terms are so mixed for everyone. I think everyone comes to these things with a different perspective and a different understanding and until we can kind of have a more broad understanding of what these things mean collectively, it, it, we're not going to be able to make any sort of long-term solution for them, I don't think, yeah. So when you talk about gentrification, do you have like a working definition of it? Uh, I mean, there's kind of probably two. There's like, what's really interesting in general is, you know, you've got your textbook definition essentially in the dictionary that's like the adhering of... Um, the, the, the transformation of the urban environment to meet middle-class standards, essentially. Um, and in a place like Australia, those middle-class standards are unavoidably white. Um, I mean, I like to say that... I like to kind of say that your flat white has a black history. Um, and, you know, that's the sort of thing. A lot of people don't really... They, they, see, they see the kind of improvements or the revitalization of areas, and they see cafes, they see nice bars, they see all of these things kind of changing around them, but... And and that's fine for them, but what that actually does is it can make a it can make a space where a community has spent a great deal of time and uh, you know have a huge amount of history there feel very alienated and um, disconnected. If, if the services don't cater to you, then you don't feel like you belong. Would you say that gentrification is inevitable? Like it's just how society is changing, moving towards. It's a it's a funny thing. I think 
we treat it like it is. I think it's I think it's kind of unavo- unavoidable in a, in the, the way that we currently deal with um, property and deal with the way that um, speculation around property activates and transforms spaces. Um, I think a deregulate deregulating of the kind of institutions that supported and secured housing, like the welfare state that we kind of see worldwide being eroded to this day. I mean, we're seeing that in Redfern and Waterloo right now with the sell-off of the Waterloo housing estate. I mean, just across the road from here, we now see the, the block of land that's been demolished in lieu to build a metro station that then gave the state the authorization to um, redevelop the area and turn it into a 70-30 pro- um, public-private mix. So um, land that was originally only for um, people of the kind of working or lower middle class, the lower lower classes, I mean, in terms of income and lower socioeconomic immigrants and stuff, people who came over from World War II, this sort of stuff, that land is now being sold off to finance or just to keep the public housing welfare kind of infrastructure afloat. I think there's a statistic that the um, Housing New South Wales has to sell two properties a day just to stay afloat. Wow. And and that's that's kind of the state that we're in at the moment, and it's this kind of this this logic around the market being the own the the most efficient way to distribute resources amongst the community, and to do that you have to essentially have you have to operate with the mentality that institutions are inefficient and that they have to be gotten rid of, and we see that. I mean, that's exactly what people. I mean, it's radical wealth redistribution, but to the top, and that's what it is. It's. Is there a society in the world where gentrification has worked, or is there a form of gentrification that can be beneficial? Mm. I mean, it's kind of a dirty. It's got a dirty kind of. It's got a. It's got a dirty connotation these days. I think the the term around it. It's. You kind of can't help but make it. I don't think it really can in any space be seen as a positive when I think it it's kind of just like it's it's a it's a it's a um sorry it's a result of kind of capitalism and I think cap- for capitalism to kind of function as it does and very much in this kind of later stage sort of neoliberal ethic around this sort of market efficiency there has to be there has to be people with less for you to have more and that's how it operates, and 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 that in this is just a kind of much more urban um, e- expression of that, and and I think it's quite interesting in in Australia's context because it happens everywhere in a different way. I mean, that's 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 the that's the that's the idea. But in Australia, the kind of and what we're trying to say with the show that we have on Skid Row, which is called Survival Guide, it's on Fridays, um, is that gentrification is colonization. Um, this country was never founded with the ideals of providing sustainable housing stock for anyone. Um, the colonial ethic around land is the extraction of capital and value from it and through theft and, and, and maintaining that. So I, I think that, yeah, fundamentally the principles are directly the same. And so in Australia, our buildings are exactly that. They're extracting wealth from the, from the ground. I want to get to the panel that you're hosting later today out mm-hmm. on Cockatoo Island. Mm. Make sure we give that a plug. But um, there are massive shifts that are happening in Redfern, Waterloo, and they have been for the past few years. Mm. But um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, as this development goes, what what is going going to happen in terms of the public housing there? What are the some of the numbers on that? So um, currently we have the public housing estate Currently, we have the public housing estate um, on Waterloo, which has a capacity to house, I think, close to 10,000 people. Um, there is kind of... 
there's kind of sketchy numbers on how many people are living there at the moment. I mean, when I was kind of working down on on um, on the estate last year, I've been doing a lot of work with the Waterloo Public Housing Action Group, um, as well as a lot of the kind of Indigenous activists who are still living in the area around um, their kind of housing rights. We for oh, there's about three thousand people living in there, mm. roughly. Um, what we will see and what land and housing um, are saying is through the redevelopment, there will be no loss of housing stock. But that's kind of that's that's quite a it's quite a loose terminology around what that means. And, um, they will probably provide somewhere around the similar amount of dwellings that are currently so maybe three thousand dwellings will stay on as public housing on a site that is one hundred percent public housing now with three thousand people. Those 3,000 people will make up 30% of a larger 100%, which 70% will be private. So that's all that's all sold off plan or private development, which will cause you know dramatic uplift. I mean, that's how they're paying for the metro station, essentially, is they nominate a space to build a metro station, then they have to build the patronage for the metro station around it. And that's why they've that's why they're gonna build public um, private housing. And so the way that, that affects the community is rent rises. Because of speculation, I mean, you're all like this studio is feeling that today. Like, this might not be where you guys get to stay for the next couple of years, you know, because this the speculative market is pushing the rent up so high. That causes shops to close down, the pubs that can feed a family for six dollars, you know, um, places that can employ young kids, young black kids, they can no longer pay the rent, and and so there's a there's sort of a a byproduct of that kind of you know, state level decision making that creates a entirely new community out of um, what can be af- what's affordable to live in that space. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea is that they'll keep as many houses as they can on the site at the moment, but they've got to move everyone out first and that it can take up to 10 years to relocate everyone. You leave, you know, you put down roots somewhere else, you're not going to come back. And that's the other thing. It's It's essentially class warfare. It's getting people out of the city. And I mean, that's the problem. You see this in other countries when you have this kind of homogeneity of upper middle class, middle class working people living in a, living in the city, and that's all that's there. It becomes dead. It's it's there's no vibrancy. There's no cultural exchange. There's no interesting things happening because you don't have people at different. You don't have people even operating with different frames of mind and time because everyone's at work nine to five. They come home. There's clubs, there's bars, it's all nice, but, you know, it, there's nothing that, yeah, I don't know. The substance. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got to get to a song, but first, um, if people are interested in these ideas and want to hear more, like, tell us a little bit about the panel you've got going on. Oh, yeah, cool. So we, um, Future Method, who I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a part of, um, with my work partner, Genevieve Murray, we have um, designed and built a installation at, on Cockatoo Island for the Sydney Biennale, and it's called the Superposition Studio. Um, and we're kind of designed around these themes about displacement and gentrification, especially in Redfern, Waterloo. I grew up in this neighbourhood and I've, I've, I've worked and, and lived in here most of my life. So um, we kind of pulled some designs, some ideas through the designing of this space. Um, but today we're hosting a panel um, in the space with uh, Lorna Munro, who I'm co-hosting um, Survival Guide with Skid Row. Um, Linda Kennedy, who is a uh, Ewan woman from Wollongong, who is also an architect, wonderful, creative, amazing, so smart. Um, and Keg D'Souza, who is an artist who has been living in Redfern for the last 20 so years. And 
um, has a kind of history in squatting and, and, and cool, like big, big large scale in- installations and some really cool stuff. So the three of them will be speaking on a kind of round table discussion around a table that we built. And um, yeah, you can, it's at 3 p.m. today. So you can come to the island and it's free and there'll be some champagne and you sit down and have a chat. Perfect. Awesome. 3 p.m. today, Cockatoo Island. Yeah. Totally free. Head out there. Get the ferry. Enjoy the beautiful... It's sunny, guys. Get on the ferry. Thanks so much, Joel. Uh, definitely encourage everyone to head out over there. But, uh, and if you have any thoughts about um, gentrification in Redfern, Waterloo, please text us in on 0409-945-945. We'd love to hear what you have to think. But now on to some international news. Yeah, so nearly 60 Palestinians were killed in the Middle East when Israeli troops fired shots during a protest on Monday. After years of violent news, this is the latest in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The United Nations Security Council held a moment of silence for those who were killed in Gaza amid the recent protests. Polish President Andrzej Duda asked for a minute of silence. At the outset of the meeting, I should like to take a moment (coughs) to remember those killed yesterday in Gaza, as well as all those Palestinian, Israeli, and others who have died as a result of a conflict that has endured for far too long. Here to shed light on this ongoing conflict is Randa Abdel Fattah, an author and race scholar on the war on terror's impact on Muslim and non-Muslim millennials. Hi, Randa. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. So these protests were prompted in part by the movement of the U.S.'s embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Tell us a little bit about the significance of that move and what it means to Palestinians. Sure. Um, so the, the, the protest actually started before the embassy move. Um, the embassy move is something that coincided with the protest, but I think it's really important to understand that the, the reason that the Palestinians were protesting was actually much more um, significant and deeper, and it started in on 30th of May, which was called Land Day, and Palestinians started to protest in Gaza, um, demanding the right of return um, as refugees to return to their homeland and to end a crippling blockade and siege over their territory um, for 11 years now. And so... um, uh, the, the 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 opening of the embassy, um, American embassy in Jerusalem, um, took place on the day before Nakba, which was the 70-year anniversary um, of a continuing and ongoing um, injustice against the Palestinians of dispossession and, and occupation and um, oppression of, of their population and, and a refusal to acknowledge their right of return. Um, the reason why the um, the protests escalated on that day. Um, it really it, it really was the the juxtaposition of the um, you know the Americans and the Israelis celebrating um, this so-called historic occasion of the illegal um, you know uh, declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of, of Israel, which is um, actually not recognised by international law and the vast majority of the international community, and having this party basically partying it up, um, and then just closely, you know, a few kilometres away, this massacre of Palestinians who were protesting um, for their rights and for their freedom. And so it was really, it's that juxtaposition that is just so sickening um, that we uh, we are trying to raise awareness about. 
Rhonda, I want to talk a little bit about Australia's role in all of this. So last night, um, the UN Human Rights Council voted in favour of sending um, war crimes investigators into Gaza. Uh, Australia, alongside the US, uh, were the only countries to vote no. Um, what is Australia's position on the, the Israel-Palestine situation been over the past few years? It's actually um, shifted towards one that's even closer to Israel. So there was kind of a little bit of neutrality um, in the past, but there's been a real shift in the last few years towards a sort of unapologetic, unashamed um, uh, alliance with Israel, a complete, um, uh, con- you know, completely condoning and sanctioning Israel's brutality against the Palestinians, Israel's illegal actions, so, for example, um, you know, abstaining or, um, or, um, or, you know, abstaining in votes about illegal settlements, something that is quite a no-brainer under international law, um, and uh, basically sanctioning illegal settlements in the West Bank with its, um, you know, tick of approval. Um, so it's been, it's really difficult for me as an Australian um, Palestinian to, to see this country's government time and time again give sort of a, a, the green light to this brutal occupying force. And um, for even in the context of Julia, um, or in the context of Julie Bishop's tweets about, um, about what was happening um, to Palestinians, to actually tweet first that Palestinians need to refrain from violence. Um, you know, blaming Palestinians for being killed, blaming Palestinians effectively for being shot at by snipers. I mean, it's quite sickening to see this kind of absolute blind support for Israel. Um, and then to cowardly, um, re- you know, refuse to support Palestinians and the vast majority of international, um, you know, powers in trying to get um, an investigation into war crimes is again sending a very clear message as to who Australia is siding with. And it is most certainly not with the victims in this conflict, but with the aggressor. I think... Um when there are these conflicts, people often ask, you know, what does X country want? And that can be kind of generalising because within a country, people may want different things. But I'm particularly curious, like, is there is there something that young Palestinians are pushing for as, like, next steps in, in this situation? Yeah, like, I think... I think it's a really good question. Um, a lot of people think that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is complicated, and I hear that a lot. It's actually a very simple, um, you know, struggle, and it's a struggle against settler colonialism. It's a struggle for freedom. Um, to give you some context, let's let's narrow it down to Gaza. So you have um, an area there that is highly dense, you know, densely populated, about 1.8 million people in this tiny strip of land. It's about 41 kilometres long and, you know, about 8 to 12 kilometres wide. So to give you a sense of having 1.8 million people in that kind of closely, um, you know, densely populated area, it's got 97% undrinkable water and they get about four hours electricity a day. And who is that population? It's 75% of them under 25. So most of the population of Gaza are young people and they have... You know, about 45% unemployment. So there's not only are they being um, sort of almost starved and um, refused the right to move, so they're not allowed to leave Gaza. Um, they are stuck basically in this open air prison. Um, they are blockaded from moving. Um, they're not allowed to, uh, you know, they don't have any work opportunities. Their, their food is restricted, their electricity, their water supply. But they're also young people 
you know, pe- people who have dreams and aspirations to live a, a life of freedom, to, to have some control over their life, and that's being denied to them completely. And so when they come out to protest, what are they protesting for? It's simply for freedom. They just want to be free from Israel's occupation. They want to be able to, to have some control over their destiny. You know, I know many people in Gaza who, who are highly educated. Um, there are no jobs for them. And not only that, they cannot leave Gaza to even seek, um, you know, a future anywhere else. If, even if they wanted to give up on their, on their um, dream of living within their homeland, they wouldn't even be allowed to leave. So they're stuck in this prison. They're stifling open their prison conditions. And what they are basically want is freedom. And that's what the Palestinian people want across, you know, the West Bank, across, um, you know, Israeli Arabs in Israel. They just want freedom, freedom from this, you know, brutal occupation, the longest occupation in modern history. Well, there's so much to unpack there. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Rhonda. And we'll keep our listeners updated on what's happening in the Middle East in our future shows. But I mean, And that- I, I think what we might do is ask Rhonda for some suggestions of, of great articles or podcasts or things like that, and we'll pop them up on, on our Twitter account and on our Facebook just to keep the conversation sure. going. Because I think, you know, getting, getting educated about this is really important. Definitely. Sure. Um, but uh, that's all we have for the show today. Thank you to our guests, Joel Spring and Rhonda Abdel-Fatah, for speaking to us today. And, of course, thank you to our producers, Natalie Sekulovska and Amelia Zhao. Uh, hope you enjoy the Royal Wedding tonight, and we'll leave you with a track. This is Ola by Janae Aker.